From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Trump administration's new budget proposal would lump vacation, holidays, and sick leave into one leave bank that would be smaller than today. The budget document says the single pool would be easier for employees to manage. GovExec reports the administration would add a short-term care insurance benefit for extra employee protection. The Air Force's 2021 budget request zeroes out a cockpit modernization program for the B-2 bomber that's three years behind schedule. The department says the Defensive Management System Modernization Program's delays have reduced the potential return on investment of the program. Defense News reports the Air Force proposes shifting $155 million of the $327 million the Air Force would have spent this year on the DMSM program to a scaled-back upgrade. The Department of Veterans Affairs will make sure it's not using equipment from the companies the government says pose a security risk. The Chief Information Security Officer at VA, Paul Cunningham, says he stands behind the VA's response to congressional questions about the banned equipment that included an active contract using Huawei equipment. FedScoop reports one member of the House Veterans Affairs Committee, Republican Jim Banks, says he thinks the agency's answers indicate no one at the department, quote, knows what is really going on. The new budget request for fiscal 2021 would change funding for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. The agency would take a cut and instead of the $2 billion it received this year, CISA would only get $1.75 billion next year. Brigadier General Greg Tuhill, U.S. Air Force retired, is president of AppGate Federal Group and former Federal Chief Information Security Officer. Greg, it's great to see you again. What's your take on what the administration is asking for for CISA? Well, you know, frankly, it's, uh, you peel back the onion and still there's not a whole lot of depth and heft in the, uh, the budget request to mm -hmm. analyze. You know, we're seeing some changes in technology. We're seeing CISA on behalf of the .gov space uh, do some new things, and the, the budget seems to be addressing some of that. Mm -hmm. Some of the stuff is still a little murky, like what are we going to see in a marketplace that they're trying to create? Uh, what are we going to see with the reduction in uh, the intrusion protection system, which I refer to as E3A program? Mm -hmm. uh, how's that play into TIC 3.0? All of those things seem to be working in this budget. What a, a lot of people look to these budget requests for in general, historically over the years, is what, how does it mark the administration's priorities? Because everybody knows that things are going to be dramatically different when the president eventually signs it from what it is they put out in February or March. What do you see as the priority shifts, the long-term agenda shifts potentially at CISA as a result of what this document says? Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, I think that we should be boosting cybersecurity spending in the civilian space. You know, as I compare it against the military cybersecurity budget, uh, it's, it's dwarfed by the uh, military budget. Uh, and .gov versus .mil, we're seeing a dramatic delta between the two budgets. And we did in the previous administrations as well. So I think there needs to be some uh, greater balance. But as you take a look at trying to preserve uh, the taxpayers' uh, coffers, you know, we're still running a, a tremendous deficit of trillions of dollars. So mm -hmm. there has to be some, uh, some cuts and better spending. Uh, when it comes to, to uh, intrusion detection uh, and protection, you know, as we take a look at the Einstein program, uh, NCPS, uh, we've, 
we've got some changes in architectures that we can employ, not only in CISA, but across the .gov. And perhaps these are the first steps as we go and we take a look at the E3A program, which has provided some intrusion protection. Uh, changing that because we're going to change how we do trusted internet connections. Mm -hmm. But we still need to have that capability and it'll be very interesting to see how those capabilities play out with this budget moving forward. It, interesting that you use the term better spending because this is something I, I know you've heard many times in your military days. The argument always is more defense spending doesn't necessarily mean better defense spending or better national defense and security. And I imagine the same thing applies in the cyber realm. Better would be better, or more would be better, but it doesn't necessarily mean we'd get a better result. Absolutely, and you know, I've been a long, a long standing proponent of changing some of the architectures mm -hmm. that we have in .gov as well as in .mil. And um, it, I think we have an arcane architectural structure that increases our costs, but doesn't deliver the results that we need. And uh, as we take a look at the strategic approach for the future, rethinking how we architect for success in the customer experience, as well as from a budget standpoint, is still something that I, I'd like to see them do better. What are the major architectural changes that you'd like to see on the civilian side of government, Greg? Well, I see every department and agency being asked to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And there's plenty of opportunity to pool resources in order to uh, provide results that are more effective, efficient, and secure. When we were doing the launch of the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program, or CDM, which actually got a bump up again this year, uh, one of the things that we did is, is we took the small and micro agencies and we started pooling some of the capabilities there. Because frankly, we're asking every department and agency to have the same type of cyber protections as the huge departments like DOD and DHS, VA, and the like. Uh, for some of the smaller agencies, that just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. What? Why do you think that hasn't happened? Because when you explain it the way you just explained it, it makes a tremendous amount of sense, given that both the Obama administration and the Trump administration have talked about shared services, have talked about pooling resources to get better deals and provide more efficient government. This seems like a very logical one. I think so as well. Uh, however, as you take a look at how money is appropriated mm -hmm. or authorized and then appropriated, uh, different committees want to hold on to their oversight over their very small niche. And we don't necessarily have on the Hill uh, a strong caucus of IT-focused uh, and cyber-focused uh, members and committees. So the way the oversight, uh, oversight structure is uh, currently employed, it tries to keep all of the separate fiefdoms going uh, separately. It strikes me that we're doing things the way we've always done things, which doesn't always provide the result we want. Less than 30 seconds left. What will you watch as this budget process actually plays out in Congress? Well, uh, a couple of things. I'd like to see balance in the force, as it were, between mm -hmm. .gov and .mil when it comes to cybersecurity. Uh, I'd like to see more outreach and sharing of information from .gov and .mil to the private sector. Uh, because I think there's a lot of gaps out there. Automated indicator sharing is a, a good start, but it doesn't play out well with small and medium businesses. So we got to do better there with uh, sharing of meaningful information. And then further, I, uh, I hope that we'll start having the conversation about having a standard accounting uh, system within the government so that we can actually see what all the true costs really are. General, thanks very much as always. Great to see you. Great to see you.
Up next, the untold story behind the Pentagon's new cyber certification. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the collision course for cybersecurity and procurement. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Defense Department will require contractors to implement its new cybersecurity standards for some contracts as soon as this year. The rollout of the cybersecurity maturity model certification won't be complete till 2026, but contractors will still need to adapt to the new standards. Frank Kendall is senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and former Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics. Frank, welcome back. Thanks for coming on the program. What's your takeaway from the progress that the department's making with CMMC? Uh, they are making some progress. Uh, they're defining more fully what they expect of people, uh, and they're starting to set up the infrastructure they're going to need. Um, I, I think that there are some fundamental concerns, though, and I think that the complexity of this entire enterprise and this endeavor uh, may be pretty daunting for them before they're done. Mm -hmm. We'll see how that works out. What about the complexity of it is the potential roadblock or roadblocks, if there are more than one? There may be more than one. Uh, just the scale. Uh, the, the size of the supply chain, the, the entire supply chain that supports the Department of Defense is huge. There's a lot of complexity in what they're implementing with the different levels and all the different components that go into those different levels. But I think there's a more fundamental problem, and I, I, and I am worried about outsourcing effectively what may be an inherently governmental function. Mm -hmm. In what way? What about it? Is, it? is it just determining what levels of security are appropriate? Is that the what you believe is inherently it, it, governmental? It's determining whether people will be allowed to bid on a contract or mm -hmm. not. Eligibility to, to bid. And I, I think that by handing that effectively over to a third party, uh, the government may be putting itself in a very awkward position, and industry in a very awkward position. There's a question of what recourse industry has. Uh, what happens if uh, there are all sorts of details, devils in the details, of course, of this. Uh, there's a potential for conflicts. There's a potential for corruption, even. So I, I think that there's a lot that should be thought through here and very carefully analyzed, uh, just how much time it will take, how much cost there will be, what's the burden we're putting on. There's another fundamental issue with it, too. Uh, what we did with the standards we put in place, which were evolving, I think, in a positive direction, and. Uh, using our contractual vehicles as the mechanism by which we, we, we obtain compliance. Uh, it's fairly straightforward. Okay. Uh, this mechanism, I, I think, is, it brings a lot of complexities and difficulties that didn't exist with the, with the current system. The current system, I think, stays in place. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm, I'm not sure this is going to get the government where it's trying to go. I'm not sure that uh, it'll, it'll be implementable as a practical matter. Mm -hmm. And I think the consequences for industry can be very severe. It also poses a barrier to entry, I think, to people who want to come in and do business with the, with the government. I smile as you're talking, Frank, not because I find you amusing, but because you always make me think about things in a way that I hadn't <laughs> thought about them before. I'll take, I'll take that as a compliment. I, please do, because the, the way you're describing this, the core of this, is when I first thought of this, I thought, how is this an acquisition issue? It's absolutely an acquisition oh, yeah. issue when you frame it the way that you frame it, because there's a potential here for almost a, 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 a protest system, I imagine. If I want to be level two, and I think I'm level two, but they don't exactly. certify me as level two, I can't bid on contracts exactly. that require that. And I go, so what's my and while you're sorting the recourse out, is exactly while, while you're sorting there. it out, the opportunity went away. Mm -hmm. So for contractors who don't do business with the government, now you've got this additional burden that you have to have to bear, and it's at your expense. You have to go get certified. 
Uh, so anyway, I, I think all of that needs to be carefully thought through. And they're, they're proceeding in a way which I think gives them an opportunity to do that. And I expect they'll have to make adjustments as they go forward. So the, the grin also came because you blew away what was going to be one of my fundamental questions, which is why should this live in Alan Lord's shop and not in Dana Deasy's shop? And oh, no, you explain explicitly it, why that's the right It's all about acquisition policy, yeah. for instance. Uh, the other thing is that it changes the focus from protecting information to protecting a company. Uh, cybersecurity of a company versus security of information. What we were trying to protect was uh, sensitive but unclassified information. So classified information is covered separately, basically. So uh, companies could be creative in how they protected information, and they could tailor what they did to the information they had to protect. This now requires a company-level certification that then gets implemented at the company level by all the subs. So it changes the dynamics of it quite a bit for industry. I'm not sure that's been thought about either. It strikes me too that this will be an ongoing evolutionary process where I might qualify for one level today, but because of the change in the, the nature of the threat landscape or advances in technology or whatever, tomorrow or six months from now or a year from now, Maybe I'll still qualify technically, but I might not be actually still providing that level of security to the department that they're going for. Uh, that's possible. Um, th there's another aspect that, that I think sh should be thought about, which is protecting your ability to operate. Mm -hmm. And we've been talking about the ability to protect information a lot. The other thing for defense contractors in particular is if when we're in a conflict situation, their ability to do their function, to operate, and, and I don't think that that's been adequately addressed by any of the things that we're mm -hmm. talking about here. What would you watch as this board starts to do its work and starts to conduct these audits and evaluations? Uh, it's really going to be interesting. Uh, I, I was told recently that the process of doing one of these audits is supposed to take on the order of three days. I don't know how for a large corporation you can get remotely adequate assessment in that period of time. I mean, there, one way this could go is it could become a relatively meaningless assessment in which pretty much everybody gets to some basic level and then they're all allowed to bid on contracts, which would mean they won't have done what they're trying to do. Right. The other extreme is it becomes a very serious barrier to entry and it's very hard for people to bid in contracts. And then there's going to be a huge hue and cry from industry about how they're being prevented from, from bidding on contracts. Uh, it, it, the cost of those two extremes is very different. Mm -hmm. uh, the complexity is very different. Uh, the mechanisms you have to put in place. But there are questions about the assessors. I, I, if you go online right now and Google CMMC, you, you get all these companies are trying to sell you CMMC certification, essentially, mm -hmm. or the path to getting there. Uh, we're creating a cottage industry. Uh, which will be to some extent self-fulfilling. And, I, I, and I, I'm not sure how that's all going to work out either. Who assesses those people? You know, what's the recourse when you know, they apply different standards, uh, different companies apply different standards to people? All sorts of questions. Who watches the watchers? Frank exactly. Kendall, thanks very much as always. Great to be with you as always, Francis. Thank you. Up next, cutting legacy systems and promoting new technology, the Pentagon's new blueprint to modernize. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the Air Force's approach and what you can learn from it. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back.
The new budget proposal would cut some of the Air Force's legacy planes and focus funding into new research efforts, retiring some B-1 bombers, A-10s, KC-10s, and KC-35s would give the department the money it says it needs to plus up multi-domain and space operations. Todd Harrison's director of the Aerospace Security Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Welcome back, my friend. It's good to see you. What's your take on all of this? I, as I read the budget request and some of the coverage of it in the last couple of days, it struck me that Senator Goldwater and Congressman Nichols are probably cheering from the great beyond as they're watching the Air Force set up multi-domain operations and some of the joint stuff that's in this budget. Yeah, well, you know, I wouldn't uh, count my chickens yet before they're hatched. <laughs> uh, there's a long way to go. Yeah. they got to get buy-in from the other services on what they're trying to develop in mm -hmm. these joint enablers uh, for the force. Um, I mean, overall, what I see in the budget is, you know, there are puts and takes. They mm -hmm. had to make some difficult trade-offs. It's not exactly what a lot of us were expecting to see, though. So what we did see is a big increase in research and development funding. Uh, so compared to what they had previously projected they would ask for in FY21 to what they actually asked for, it's an increase of $5.7 billion. But on the flip side, we see a cut in procurement funding, and almost half of that cut comes from shipbuilding. Mm -hmm. um, so there are really some surprises there, but it shows the difficult trade-offs that the department has to make between force structure and modernization. And you and I have talked many times over the years about why these shifts are necessary, moving from program costs We've talked about personnel costs and how they continue to increase and so on and so forth. Any broad takeaways strategically from that on those kinds of issues from what you're seeing in this document? Well, you know, I think if you want to look at the department's real strategy, so not the national defense strategy that they put out on paper, but mm -hmm. look at the strategy they're really following. Look at their five-year plan and mm -hmm. the budget request. That tells you what they're really doing and what their real priorities are. What you see in the five-year plan is even though research and development funding goes up this year, it declines every single year after that all the way through FY25. So we see big cuts coming down the road in research and development. So as much as they're pushing, you know, new technology investments, and new weapon systems now, that is not a sustained effort in mm -hmm. the budget. Procurement, if you think it's bad this year, it's projected to drop even lower in FY22. The big winner we see in this budget, uh, you know, since it's almost Valentine's Day, I would say this budget is a love letter to military personnel. Uh, we see big increases uh, in military personnel as a share of this budget, and that's projected, that part of the budget is projected to grow faster than inflation for the next five years, even though the overall budget is flat with inflation. I saw a report this week that the Navy has 9,000 billets to fill to continue to keep ships operational at the level that they need to. And we're at, I think, 290 ships in the fleet now. Yeah. Somebody's going to have to run at least most of the other 60 ships or so that they want to add in the coming 10 years. Well, yeah, and so they're adding they're adding people. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what we see the forces doing. Uh, and people come with a long tail of costs. You know, you have to keep paying them every single year. It's not like a weapon system where you buy it in one year and then you've got it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, the, all of the services, with the exception of the Marine Corps, uh, are trying to add people to build up and reinforce their force structure at a time when they're also supposed to be modernizing and investing in new technologies 
you know, pivoting towards great power competition. And the reality is that in a flat budget, even at a pretty high level by historical standards, you can't do all of mm -hmm. that at once. And they're going to have to make uh, trade-offs between modernization and force structure. And I would say overall in this budget, uh, they're choosing to maintain force structure more often than they're choosing to modernize. It strikes me that that's exactly the same discussion that we had in 2010, in 2013. This is not different, is it? It is not. It's a continuation, uh, and you know, it's this you know continue continued issue of if you want to face future threats, you need different capabilities and a different force. But you are locked into the conflicts and the op tempo that we have today. Mm -hmm. uh, the current needs of the combatant commanders uh, are what's driving a lot of these these decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, at some point, you have to take risk in one or the other. We have about a minute left, Todd. The reason that it's concerning to me that we're having the same discussion that we had in 2010, 2013, is because what we found in the years after each of those kinds of conversations was a tremendous readiness shortfall because yeah. we were and I love the people but if you're spending the money on the people and you're not investing in the equipment the equipment starts to fail at some point yeah so your investment in equipment is an investment in long-term readiness mm -hmm. uh, your investment in operation and maintenance your training and your upkeep of equipment that's your investment in near-term readiness um, and yeah you have to balance those two and I would agree I think we got out of balance uh, starting around 2013 when we saw the Budget Control Act go into effect uh, and then we had to make up for that later uh, and you know we may be headed towards a similar situation where we get out of balance now and we get into another readiness death spiral less less than 30 of. seconds is it possible that this budget is written this way to demonstrate that to Congress and say we need more money so this doesn't happen again so history doesn't repeat itself uh, you know they're not communicating that okay. uh, but I think there are parts of it that you could look at and say yeah like the shipbuilding plan uh, you look at it they're cutting two ships in FY 21 10 ships over the next five years I think they're guaranteed to get pushback from Congress over cuts like that Todd Harrison thanks very much I'm Sharice Hanner you can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere anytime Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. The West Conference celebrates 30 years of bringing military and industry leadership together this year. It features military and civilian leadership and three engagement theaters covering a lot of different topics. It's back at the San Diego Convention Center this year, March 2nd and 3rd. You can get more information and you can register at govmatters.tv slash events. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI.
Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.